The Roman Emperor Julian, who reigned after Constantine the Great, was a man much more devoted to the old pagan gods, and he hated with a passion the fact that his predecessor had set about legalising Christianity and starting to bring the Roman Empire under its sway. He attacked bitterly the church's claims that Jesus was the fulfilment of Old Testament Judaism, Old Testament prophecy, saying that there was nothing in the Old Testament to suggest this link or continuity, something about which he was, of course, very wrong. And one thing that he really sneered at concerning Christianity was that he called it a sect of the fishermen of Galilee. In other words, it was just a a local little cult practiced by those of a menial trade only. And he derided the idea that an incarnate God would make his followers something as seemingly humble as fishermen, or choose to leave them in such a role. To a mind steeped in classical philosophy with its grand, aloof view of what divinity should be, this seemed like a nonsense. How could being a fisherman be an honourable thing? A king, a priest, a statesman, yeah, okay. But a fisherman? What sort of divine commission's that? Who could be proud of such a demeaning metaphor? But he was wrong again, of course, wasn't he? Because in God's kingdom, which takes humble metaphors such as here fishing, bread and wine, which we'll be celebrating later in communion, and so on, and makes them represent something great, something eternal. The great commission that Jesus gives to his church, represented here by the commands of fish for people, to be used in God's great plan of spreading the news of redemption won for us by his Son, is one of the greatest honours, isn't it, that can be conferred on us human, once lost in our sins. And in our text, Simon the fisherman, Peter to be, he's not Peter yet, but we're used to him being Peter, so I'll call him that for the most part, is about to be called to exchange one kind of fishing from another for just literally catching little sea creatures for people to eat. Well, okay, we need it. But to one that's far more important than that, to be, by contrast, saved into a kingdom that's far more eternal in the end, than Julians, and fed and nourished in their souls. The Greek word that's used here in the context of fishing for men is a word, zagero, and it means more than just putting a line out and catching something. It carries with it a sense of being saved alive, being rescued. And so, as our passage begins, we know that This wasn't the first meeting between Jesus and Peter. This new rabbi, he's been around for a little while. Travelling rabbis aren't unusual, of course, but this one's been working miracles. He's cured the mother-in-law of a fever. Peter's probably sat at Jesus' feet and heard some of his teaching. Again, quite usual. But what happens when this nice religious buzz that's brightening up the week suddenly becomes something altogether more compelling. 
And Jesus, perhaps being forced out of towns and buildings by the intensity of the crowds and by official opposition, is ministering to the crowd to flock to him on the seashore, round where Peter's working. John Wesley once said this, I love a commodious room, a soft cushion, and a handsome pulpit, but field preaching saves souls. And so as Jesus, pressed in by the crowd, jumps into Simon's boat and asks to take it out into the water a bit, he isn't just after getting some space or going after some improved acoustics. He knows full well the commission that he's about to give to Peter, using the metaphor of his fishing trade. And it's on a day when Peter has seen these crowds milling round his master-to-be that Jesus will commission him to catch them. See these masses, Peter? These lost and hungry people looking for answers, not sure what truth is, not sure what can really fulfil them? They're your fish now. They're who I'm sending you to catch now. Peter sees them as he's doubtless seen them before. Probably at the moment he's cursing because he's caught nothing all night, can't sell them any fish. So he might not mind too much when Jesus asks to use his boat. The work he's doing on his nets matters. If the nets aren't washed and stretched out to dry, they'll rot and be useless. But it's also tedious and he's probably glad of a break. And he might be quite pleased and proud and grateful that this new preacher who's already done something for him, healing a member of his family, shown himself to be something more than the ordinary, someone powerful, someone holy, wants to use his boat. What's important is that he's happy to put what he is and has at Christ's disposal, to let it be used by him, and in being used, transformed into something greater than himself and itself. He could have been happy to hang in the background, let someone else do this, I've had a rough night, no results, need to get this done and get some sleep. But letting God come close to us has to change our hearts. And if we put our skills and assets at God's disposal, what he will do with them will amaze us. In 1986, a boat was discovered in the Sea of Galilee that's of the type that Simon would have owned. This is how it looks now. Back in the day, as in our first picture, it would have had masts and sails too. It's about eight metres long, three metres wide, and carbon dating has shown that while we can't say it's precisely the time of Jesus, it roughly is, so it could be a little bit before, could be very slightly after. Um, So while it can't specifically link to Jesus, I wonder if the local tourist trade has tried to say Jesus stood in this boat, but you can't. Um, It does show us the type that would have been used, and who knows if it was lost a little bit before the time of Christ, His followers may even have been aware of it or seen its wreck on the seabed. So Jesus sits down in a boat like this and teaches. And then he begins to spring his test on Peter. He tells him to go back out into the deeper waters and cast his nets. 
Peter, of course, protests that he's been doing this all night anyway. Thank you. As the message version plaintively puts it, he's not even got a minnow to show for it either. So he's being asked to do now what he wouldn't normally be doing at this time. He's out of his routine. He's out of his comfort zone. He's going in a bit blind. As with many miracles, we may remember the, uh, the man with the withered hand commanded to, to put his hand forth. Naaman the Syrian, go and bathe in the river. There's an effort, a step of faith, a leap of logic required before the miracle is given. But of course, Peter's cynical, isn't he? Who wouldn't be? Miracle worker, this rabbi may be, full of wisdom, but he's a landlubber, a carpenter. He's not a fisherman, and even worse, he's from Nazareth. And so, sooner or later, we all hit that wall of doubt, don't we? Whether it's a situation where we're trying to do the right thing, and it doesn't seem to be working out, or it might even be something basic about our faith that we're struggling with, or something that we know God is calling us to do that doesn't seem to make sense. Will we then allow our communion with God in prayer and his word and the support that Christian community in whatever form, whether it's church, whether it's Christian union, whatever it may be, gives us to bring us through it? Because imagine a loss if Peter had just said no and walked away. Like the rich young ruler, what you're asking is too hard. No, sorry. I need to do what I know to do. I just need to sort the nets out, go to bed. Sorry, get someone else. F.B. Meyer said this, The Lord always supersedes us. He superseded Peter in the command of the boat that he'd navigated since he was a child. There's always a resting point for the soul when we surrender the command and let Christ be our captain. If we do this, Mayer concludes, in the teeth of great difficulties, he will do above all that we could ask or think. And so, of course, as we secondly consider the miracle that happens, Peter does what he's been asked to do. And of course, the results are staggering. The weary fishermen have gone from nothing to abundance. And Peter's response, as we've seen, is more than just, okay, thanks, sorry, I doubted. More than, oh, wow, I've been blessed since you came into my life. He says, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. In the face of grace and blessing, all he can feel is his own unworthiness. As the message version again puts it, I'm a sinner and I can't handle this holiness. There's a huge contrast here, isn't there, between Peter's response and that of some others that we've seen. We may remember in chapter 4 how the wonder of some of the people who heard Jesus proclaim himself the fulfillment of prophecy turned to fury and rejection. And we may remember as well the hostility of demons being cast out of afflicted people, fallen angels who know very well who this person is, Jesus the Son of God, but will not let him be their Lord. Peter, by contrast, responds to Jesus with repentance and worship because the revelation of God's glory should be humbling. 
We may remember Job at the end of his book, his torments answered by a revelation of God's greatness, crying out, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you, and now I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Or Isaiah crying out, Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. So why is it this miracle that's brought Peter to that point? He's seen other miracles, seen a family member healed. Why not then? He's seen Jesus speak the words that cut to the hearts of many. So why now? Obviously, there's an element of God's timing on a miracle that's setting up a calling to a discipleship and apostleship. But I think also that this particular miracle has shown Simon Peter several important things about God. Firstly, it struck to the heart of his self-sufficiency. It's shown him that the areas of his life in which he feels himself to be most expert are the areas in which he still needs God's help. Peter regards himself as an expert on fishing. He knows the sea. But like life itself, like our lives, the sea is not a tame thing that just does what we tell it. It's pulled about by all sorts of circumstances and forces that we can't control. Jesus will show Peter this more times than once. We may remember the calming of the storm, in which a storm so terrible that it terrifies even hardened fishermen is stilled in an instant by Jesus. Or Christ commanding Peter to come to him, to walk on the water. As soon as Peter takes his eyes off Jesus, he sinks. So this is the environment that Peter has lived and worked in all his life. But without Jesus, however incomplete his revelation of him yet is, he's still lost and over his head. Secondly, in doing this, it's also shown him God's care for his deepest needs. Peter is a fisherman, he needs to catch fish. More deeply though, it shows him on a spiritual level the great truth of the words that another apostle, Paul, will later write in 2 Corinthians, that God's grace is sufficient for us because he's glorified in our weakness. That where our ability, wisdom, knowledge and strength end, his begins. Thirdly, perhaps, he's also seen Jesus have dominion over nature. He'll see this again in the storm at sea miracle, and perhaps he's seeing in this another aspect of redemption, that when Adam fell from God, he was warned that the ground would no longer yield its strength to him for food, that nature would fight against him. For all the many benefits that science and technology have given us, this is a battle we never win completely. But Jesus wins it not just because he's got power, but he's perfect God made perfect man, redeeming all that we've got wrong. And so, in the light of all this, the season of Lent leading up to Easter that we're currently in, and the celebration of communion that we're going to do in a little while, give us great opportunities, don't they, to reflect on how important it was for us whether we grew up in the Christian faith or not, to come to a place where we knew for the first time our need of God and the wonders of his grace and strength that does in us what we can't do for ourselves. 
and perhaps to ask ourselves whether we need God to give us that wonder and that gratitude again. And perhaps to ask ourselves in all honesty whether there may be areas of our lives and thinking where we think we know better than God. Not because we might ever consciously think or admit that we know better than God, but if we angle our lives, uh, if we angle our lives sorry, away from his word, that is what we're saying. And a huge part of our discipleship, isn't it, is just learning that God knows best. However much at times it hurts our pride, hurts the urge that we always have to do things our way, and that if we in our life with God seek his strength, he can take us far beyond ourselves and he will care for our deepest needs. And so as we thirdly and finally consider the commission that's given, Peter has come to the confessional point where he needed to be. So what happens now? There was a popular slogan a few years ago, wasn't there? WWJD, what would Jesus do? Maybe some of you might have had one of the wristbands, a sales gimmick perhaps, but uh, behind it a sincere and serious reminder. So what does Jesus do? There are some significant things that he doesn't do. He doesn't berate Peter for his sinfulness or make him do any more public repentance. Later along the way, there'll be rebukes. Later along the way, there'll be hard lessons learned. Later along the way, there will be more repentance. But now is not the time. At the same time, though, neither does he disagree with Peter's assessment of himself. He doesn't say, you're not a sinner, really, don't worry. There's no sense that sin doesn't matter or it, we don't need to bother about it or it's some kind of old-fashioned doctrine under the law that we don't need anymore. But what Jesus is doing in commissioning him here is giving him a vision for something better, something that he can become under God's tutelage. I'm just a sinner, Peter cries. Yes, Jesus says, but don't worry because I'm going to make you a fisher of men. He's going to take him and make him into something better. And he's going to use him for things that matter, not just now, but eternally. Not just to catch fish that will fill someone's belly for an hour or two, but then leave them hungry for something else. But people, rescued forever, living life with a God who loves them, knowing eternal truth that though Peter cries out to Jesus to leave him because his instinct from the law and probably from the Pharisees is that I'm sinful and therefore what's holy can't be anywhere near me, grace doesn't leave him there and grace doesn't leave us there either. Grace is going to help him as it helps us overcome his failings and sanctify him back to God as it does for us too. So finally then, what else might all this leave us with? Firstly, if you can't yet call yourself a follower of Christ or a believer in Jesus, if you're not yet in a place where that great revelation of Christ is yours, following Jesus begins with a simple acknowledgement of our failing and inadequacy and the need for faith in him as an all-sufficient saviour, no more nor less than that. And secondly, for all of us, wherever we are, if we can learn to 
trust in God's strength and wisdom above our, above our own, to put ourselves at his disposal. He will use us and he will help us. Thirdly and finally, Peter was called to leave his net and follow into a new mission, to leave it all behind. We may not all be called to quite such a radical departure from our secular lives, our secular professions, but all of us are called to leave something behind, whether it's habits, ways of thinking, doing, being. Could we ask ourselves maybe what it is for us tonight that God might be still nudging us to leave behind? Finally, tonight, as we move into a celebration of the Lord's Supper together, we can all thank God, I'm sure, for where his grace has taken us from and where it's taking us to. That in spite of our many failings and stumblings, and Peter had plenty too, that God is moving us on, helping us, leading us, and making of us the thing that Julian so derided, his servants, his children, and fishers of men in his great and eternal kingdom.